1: Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Lots of interesting elements in the mix this week, all adding to the sense of drama and the feeling that the conflict is reaching a tipping point. The summer has now arrived in Ukraine, so it's reasonable to assume that the tempo of fighting could rise significantly any day now.
0: We've been seeing some very interesting developments in theatre, particularly around Bakhmut, where there's been some verified reports, including some striking imagery of Russian regular army units running away and leaving the Russian flanks exposed. There have also been more missile and uh, drone strikes on Kyiv and elsewhere. All this as President Zelensky toured France and Britain to secure new supplies of weapons and ammunition. But let's start with the desertions. They seem pretty striking to me, Saul, those pictures of infantrymen legging it and being cut down by artillery fire in the process.
1: Yes, indeed. There does seem to have been a worrying crumbling of discipline among the Russian regular troops, uh, relinquishing hard-won gains in Bakhmut. And their performance has, has produced, needless to say, the expected torrent of expletive laden fury from Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin, whose men have been doing most of the dying in the attempt to take the city. Now, the intelligence briefing by Western officials that we've just attended says that the desertions are a trickle, not a flood, but are significant all the same, an evidence of fundamental morale problems. It's interesting, isn't it, Patrick, if this is an indication of what's going on around Bakhmut, where admittedly the worst casualties have been taken in recent months – I think it is perfectly reasonable to assume that there is an overall problem with morale. We've we've been speculating about this for a long time. And of course, the the hint, I think, that there's going to be real trouble if the Ukrainians make a serious breakthrough in the upcoming offensive.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's speculation, is it? We've had plenty of video evidence circulating among uh, the Russian troops themselves to show that morale is pretty much at rock bottom. And I don't think it would necessarily... Take that much for alarm and despondency to spread further. That's why I wonder whether it's actually such a good idea to shoot down uh, soldiers when they're retreating. I'm thinking back to the I've seen this in, in practice in the Falklands, where you know the Argentinian troops started breaking and running, and, and artillery fire was called down on them, but very quickly stopped for that reason. You know, the, the thinking being, well, let them get back to base and say, you know, let's pack it in, chaps, uh, rather than. You know, risk putting some fight back in them, by when they see their comrades being shot down, same thing happened in Basra in the uh, second Gulf War when the, the Brits more or less uh, on the point of taking the city, southern city of Basra in Iraq. And the thinking was actually, let's not surround it, let's leave uh, the rear open. So if they do decide to call it a day, they've got a way out without getting killed, it avoids us having to get into a big fight. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there should be some serious uh, thinking about what happens when you get into a situation where troops, enemy troops, do start deciding that uh, they've had enough. Now, the Prigozhin thing is interesting, isn't it, as well, as all, I mean, you know, he's featured very much in all our recent episodes, and it seems to me that it really has, it's no longer just sort of rhetoric. It's now getting to the point where he's directly attacking Putin, and it seems that he's he's actually now stuck in eastern Ukraine. He can't go back to Russia for fear of assassination.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to know what's going on here, isn't it, Patrick? I mean, they both uh, know each other from a long time back in St. Petersburg. Obviously, they took different paths. Prigozhin jailed for nine years and allegedly sexually abused by his fellow prisoners. Uh, you know, similar to what is said to have happened to Saddam Hussein, His survival, of course, depends on his usefulness, and he is still useful. So I'm not entirely convinced he'll be assassinated if he goes back. But at the same time, he's staying close to uh, his main power base, which are, of course, his troops.
0: Yes, a kind of fascinating symbiosis uh, between the two. As you say, they took different paths, but they both had to be extremely ruthless to get where they are. And they are both survivors. So, yeah, I think the story has got a way to run. Uh, what about these missile strikes and so? Uh, for once, the Russians seem to have actually been aiming at a military target and appear to have had some success.
1: Yes, after all that attempt to destroy energy infrastructure and failing, uh, another thing that was pointed out actually in our briefing by Western officials this week, uh, they do seem to have had a little bit of success. Uh, one strike by twenty-one Iranian-supplied. Shahid drones on the city of Kilnetsky in West Ukraine apparently hit a facility that was said to be storing missiles and ammunition and caused an enormous mushroom cloud explosion. So that's obviously a setback for the Ukrainians. And there's also this interesting report on another mass attack on Kiev by these incredibly quick hypersonic missiles supposed to be impossible to shoot down. And in that attack, a US-supplied Patriot surface-to-air missile system Seems to have been damaged. I mean that that's been acknowledged by uh, U.S. sources. But here's an interesting thing: the Russians said it had been destroyed, and the latest we're hearing from the CNN, which uh, cites three U.S. officials, is that actually it's still operational. And I think the implication here is that if it was damaged, it was probably damaged by debris from a missile that had been knocked out of the sky, rather than an actual missile explosion, which of course would have, you know, probably taken it out completely.
0: So it's a mixed picture, isn't it, Saul? I mean, you've got, you know, some Russian success possibly doing, you know, some significant damage to their to the munition supplies. But on the other hand, you've got these reports that two Russian fast jets and two helicopters were shot down inside Russia, just over the border, in the Bryansk region. And that, as you know, the Western intelligence briefing we've got also pointed out poses significant problems for the Russians as that area, that air, airspace uh, is used uh, to launch missiles from over the border into Ukraine.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And and the other thing to bear in mind, actually, Patrick, from the reports of the last few days, that these mass missile attacks against, as you say, military targets, or at least in theory against military targets, is they're not having much effect. Multiple missiles were fired, as I say, in the last few days, and almost all of them seem to have been shot down. So either by patriots or, or by other systems that uh, NATO supplied, possibly even by the Ukrainians' old Soviet-style uh, kit. But nevertheless, very little seems to be getting through now. And of course, this must be intensely frustrating for the Russians because they are gradually, slowly but surely, depleting their ballistic kit.
0: Uh, now, so you, you've been advocating this for a long time, so you'll be pleased uh, with the UK's decision to supply Ukraine with these Storm Shadow long-range cruise missiles. Now, they, they do seem to be pretty impressive bits of kit. We had a, uh, a comment from a retired US Army colonel called uh, Gian Gentile. Who did a couple of tours in Iraq, and he's now director of a, or associate director rather, of a think tank, the Rand Arroyo Center in America. And he said that uh, storm shadow missiles uh, will have a huge psychological impact on Russian soldiers uh, and have them quaking in their boots, he said. What do, what do you think? Do you think that this is a, a really um, significant increase in capability for the
1: Ukrainians? Hugely significant. Um, well, I'll come on to talk about the storm shadow <laughs> in, in a little bit of detail in a second. But But it's also interesting that the British MOD has just announced that it's sending long-range suicide drones, as they've described them, which are capable of striking at up to 200 miles away. Now, the Storm Shadow, in its kind of purest version, the version that the British armed forces use, can go over 200 miles. They reckon that the version the Ukrainians got can go at least 150 miles, and it can take a 990-pound warhead that can penetrate pretty much any form of defensive system at that sort of range. And the reason this is significant, Patrick, is because High Mars, what's that, about 60 or 70? miles. So all of a sudden, the Ukrainians have got the kit to take out what the Russians had actually moved back from the front lines, or at least near to the front lines, away from high miles range. And those are, of course, ammunition dumps, command and control centers. And the reason this is so important now before the counteroffensive is because we're now in what's called the shaping phase, which is you're prepping for the counteroffensive. And this is the point at which you want to start taking out strategic targets of the type I've just mentioned. And already these storm shadows we know have been used within Ukraine's borders. They've been used, as I say, to take out these sort of key locations. And I suppose the big question is whether or not they're actually going to be used to hit targets in Russia proper, because you can imagine that this stuff is going to be pulled even further back. Something tells me it won't come to that, as this might have been a stipulation for the supply in the first place. In other words, they're just used inside Ukraine.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, that, that all brings us to what the counteroffensive will look like. And again, we'll turn to the um, Western intelligence briefing we got. Now, the officials there were saying that, for one thing, uh, it's imminent. That, that, that all the kind of body language, all the kind of uh, indications we got without being absolutely spelled out was that it's it's sort of any day or any week at the longest now. The new force that the international coalition has equipped and trained is almost ready to go, and the, the speculation is that, Like I say, it's going to be very soon. Now, the question is how they will actually go about it. Now, one of the things that emerged is that although the assessment was that the Russians have actually done a reasonably good job of building very strong defensive lines, possibly impenetrable if the worst comes to the worst, uh, they've got 200,000 troops spread out over a thousand kilometer front, and that's a long front. So, uh, you know, how much depth have they actually got? Uh, is is one question, and are there any reserves actually available to plug the gaps? Should the Ukrainians break through? Is another one. There's also been a lot of minefields laid down in the past months. Um, that would be uh, just as an aside. That would be a, a worry for the future because uh, the Russians have a tendency to scatter mines around willy nilly without mapping them properly, and we saw that in Afghanistan where they were still blowing people's legs off uh, twenty or more years after they pulled out. However, despite all that, all those months of preparations and the job they've done thus far, I'm optimistic that a big breakthrough is still on the cards and uh, one that could lead to a general collapse, given the underlying lack of real motivation on the Russian side, plus their proven failings in organization, etc. How are you feeling today, Saul?
1: Yeah, I'm feeling pretty optimistic too. There was an interesting piece by Hamish de Breton, who uh, later became the kind of biological warfare uh, chief in the British Armed Forces. But before that, he was a tank commander and he knows the Challenger too. And he feels it's going to go through Russian defences like a knife through butter, presumably with the Abrams uh, and the leopards alongside. But it's interesting, this briefing, this intelligence briefing, they seem to be trying to play down expectations for big battlefield success. They're managing expectations. uh, And they are thinking that the benefits will be more in political terms than material or military. Um, it, it's a bit of a contradiction in terms as far as I'm concerned, but as I say, they're managing expectations. So what do they mean by political? Well, they don't think there's going to be a ravaging of Russian lines of defence, as they put it, and a rapid advance towards the Sea of Azov. I'm not so sure, but that's their belief. More likely, they feel, is that it will give, that is, any battlefield success will give a jolt to Putin and achieve the cognitive effect that he is losing. I'm not entirely convinced that the Kremlin's suddenly going to say, do you know what, they've had a bit of success on the battlefield, we the game's up. But that seems to be the theory. I mean, their belief is that Putin is playing the long game, hoping the West will lose patience and eventually pressure Ukraine to accept a disadvantageous peace. So the objective is to get the message to him that he's losing. And that is what they hope the Canada offensive will do.
0: Well, as we used to say when I was a reporter at ITN, at the end of a piece to camera, only one thing is certain, only time will tell. So we'll leave it there. Uh, We'll be back after the break with listeners' questions. Lots of fun ones this week. Do join us.
1: Welcome back. Well, we're going to start with a challenge to some of the stuff Patrick was saying last week about the effect of sanctions on the Russian economy and its ability to wage war. And frankly, both Patrick and I, as he will explain in a minute, are delighted to have received these messages. Uh, One in particular from Jeremy King, who lives in Norway, where he works in the oil and gas industry. And he writes... I love the podcast, but must take issue with the assertions made by Patrick in today's episode, which repeats the myths that the Russian economy is weathering the current crisis without difficulty. Professor Sonnenfeld from Yale has given several interviews which deal quite effectively with these myths.
0: So what Jeremy says is, uh, quoting, I suppose, Professor Sonnenfeld, is that uh, although it has got other natural resources, Russia essentially lives off oil and gas, and that these revenues have dropped precipitously since February 2022. Uh, And then he goes on to quote some of the um, statistics, particularly the kind of uh, benchmark one, I suppose, which is the barrel price of both oil and gas, which has really fallen off a cliff. Um, We've had several other messages from people pointing out uh, the counter view. This is one from Paul from Illinois, who uh, breaks down how the uh, Revenues have declined and basically the, the cost of, of production have, have gone up enormously and delivery. So although the output might look pretty much unchanged, the fact is the revenue they're getting from it uh, has slumped. And he also makes the point about the figures that are quoted, uh, the, the ones that are usually referenced are from the IMF and the World Bank, but they're unverifiable. They actually are supplied by the Russians themselves, who don't have any interest in actually giving true figures. So, um, yeah, a lot of people have mentioned this. Hugh from Ireland is another one. Now, just in reference to, to where my information came from, it was it was mainly from journalistic sources. and. it it did make me reflect on the different ways that academics and journalists go about providing information. So that the problem is with journalism, that it's always got to say something new. It it abhors status. So to get the truth, I think you have to dig uh, more into academic sources which don't operate under the same imperative to provide some sort of novelty. So yeah, I think glad to to, to be corrected there. And let's hope that uh, it's the academics and not the journalists who are right.
1: Yeah. And just a broad point to make here, Patrick, is that we both welcome this correction uh, for the very obvious reason that it shows that the Russian economy is not weathering the sanctions regime and the fact that its main market in Europe has now been cut off. It's selling stuff elsewhere, but not at the same price. So it is suffering. And we hope that along with any anticipated gains by the Ukrainians soon is going to make a big difference in the war. There was a very nice um, message in response to our interview with Mark Neville a while ago, uh, and this is from Andrew Errington. Well done, Saul and Patrick. That was the most enlightening talk with Mark Neville. Totally brilliant and moving. I don't have a drop of Ukrainian blood, but as a Briton, I feel an obligation to this beleaguered country. I always wonder what I should do to help. I've just donated to Postcode Ukraine. That, of course, is Mark's charity, as I have to other charities connected to this war in Ukraine. I really hope that Mark Neville's interview can get out to the widest possible audience. More importantly, I hope his message can get to those onlookers currently on the wrong side of history. Uh, And we all agree with that. Thank you so much, Andrew.
0: Yeah, we've had several like that. Uh, Just a quick one from Alex here, who's wondering if we've got any insights into what's happening with Kadyrov. Uh, That's Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya, and he's what he calls his TikTok army. He was saying he's very visible and vocal earlier in the war, but seems to have gone quiet. He says there have been rumors about his health, etc. And he looks uh, different over the last few months than he had previously. He wondered if we had any concrete information. Well, I've done a bit of digging on this, and unfortunately, the short answer is that uh, Ramzan Kadyrov doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I've just read an article on the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace by Vadim Dubnov. And he says that the uh, stories of kidney problems were actually probably fake news put out by an émigré rival of Kadirov and that the relationship that's been established between Kadyrov and Putin is working pretty well for both of them, despite the fact that Kadyrov has been making critical noises about the uh, the Russian conduct of the war. So at least for the time being, uh, the the situation seems to be fairly stable, and that's evidenced by the fact that Kadyrov's son, Ahmad, 17-year-old son and presumably successor, was received uh, in the Kremlin by Putin only a couple of months ago in March, and that's been taken as confirmation that the dynasty's rule in Chechnya is secure, at least for the time being. So no change there, sadly.
1: Interesting, though, Patrick, that this uh, planned takeover from Wagner in Bakhmut by Kadyrov's men has not taken place, has it? I mean, remember, we reported Kadyrov's boast that he would take the city within a matter of hours of taking over. Well, that doesn't seem to have happened. And just one quick thing to add on the Prigozhin front, actually, because this is a bit more of a development we spoke about the gains that the Ukrainians were making on the flanks. But at the same time, Prigozhin is saying that the Russian Ministry of Defense is actually lying about the setbacks and claiming that actually it is still making ground when it apparently it is not. So this ongoing feud continues. But one thing we are reasonably clear about is that Kadyrov and Prigozhin are aligned together against the MOD.
0: Okay, just a quick one again from... Uh george who asks are foreign fighters still at play in the ukrainian side i won't read the rest of the question but just refer him to the big interview this week with richard lofthouse a academic turned journalist who's recently come back from ukraine in which he talks about his meeting uh, with a georgian unit uh, which has been operating there since 2014 i believe and sheds a lot of light on that subject
1: yeah, just to give a couple of quick details, uh, the Georgian National Legion uh, started out about 100 strong. It's now got 2,000 fighters, all used in special operations. And of that number, Patrick, 1,000, as we heard from Richard's interview uh, with the boss of the Georgian National Legion, 1,050% are foreigners, including 35 Brits. So, pretty remarkable, actually. And they're going on behind the lines missions, uh, stuff we really don't hear about. And probably we're going to have to wait for the end of the war to really discover what they are up to. But according to Richard, you know, the boss is a legend. Mamuka, as he's called, is a legend in his lifetime. So it'll be interesting to hear more about that at some point.
0: Now, Brian from Texas asks an interesting historical question. Uh, He's wondering what happens if Ukraine does succeed in actually driving Russia out from all its territory and uh, speculates that this, this might put us into a situation that would leave Russia being in a similar posture to Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, i.e. post the Versailles uh, settlement. Well, thanks for that. The difference, I would say, is that Russia is already in its super nationalist phase and it's already got its Hitler figure in Putin. Uh, the Versailles Treaty applied to a very different Germany it was an emerging parliamentary democracy which was a new experience for Germany and the perceived humiliations were able to create a space and narrative for hitler and the nazis to flourish so i think russia has already reached that point i think if you are looking for a parallel uh, or rather a kind of alternative historical view i think what's happening now is really a, a kind of version of alternative history it's uh, what would have happened if the germans had invaded Poland in September 1939, and instead of achieving the quick victory they did, were finding a year later that they had failed and that they were now on the defensive. I think that's kind of where we are now with Russia and Ukraine.
1: The big difference between the First World War and now, Patrick, is that after the end of the First World War, Germany had a lot of territory taken away. Now, we're not suggesting that that happens to Russia. We just want, or at least Ukraine just wants, the restoration of its territorial integrity. Now, the question of reparations is an interesting one. And there's, it's absolutely justifiable that Russia should help to repay for the repair of the damage it's done. That doesn't mean that Russia needs to be brought to its knees economically, and, and possibly some balance needs to be struck there. But I don't see the uh, situation as comparable, frankly. And I agree with you, uh, Russia's already in this super nationalist state. Okay, um, a little bit surprisingly to me, we've had a lot of responses to the password uh, question we had last week, which was, of course, how do the Ukrainians distinguish themselves from the Russians on the battlefield?
0: Yeah, we've had uh, questions from Richard in East Yorkshire, a question from Brett, a long-time listener writing from Lviv, Daniel Middleberg from Washington, USA, Paul Schotzberger etc, etc. Well, we've had some really interesting clarification on this from Askold Kruselnitsky and his wife, Irina Chalupa, old friends of the podcast. And they illuminated us about what the situation is in Ukraine. This is, of course, about challenges and counter signs. Now, what prompted all this was a question from someone pointing out that during the Normandy landings, the Allied challenge from the century to someone approaching was flash. And the correct response was thunder. Now, this was chosen because the word thunder was difficult for Germans to pronounce correctly. And Askold writes, the Ukrainian military and other government personnel change their code words at least twice a day. And they're circulated to military and other government personnel by an encrypted system. Just as in the way of D-Day's thunderstorm countersign it was difficult for Germans to pronounce, Ukrainians also sometimes test suspect people they think might be Russians trying to pass themselves off as Ukrainians by asking them to say the Ukrainian word for a type of round bread loaf, which is called palyentsia. Now, Ukrainians, uh, including those who mainly speak Russian, pronounce that palyentsia. While Russians mangle the Ukrainian soft u sounds, like the word English word murmur, the Russians don't have a letter with the Ukrainian ts sound and pronounce the ukrainian ya as r ah. so they this comes out as Palianitsa. so this test word has become so widespread that even wikipedia now has a little section about it uh Askell also sent a little audio clip of his wife irina giving us the distinctions irina you remember kicked our series off many months ago but we haven't been able to stitch this in but thanks anyway uh for that
1: Okay, good question from Simon uh, at Cows on the Isle of Wight. Uh, as I write this on Friday, May the 12th, do you think that the much anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive has in essence already started? Recent, by back-moot standards, significant territorial gains by the Ukrainians, increased drone activity above the Black Sea Fleet, and a spike in partisan attacks lead me to believe that, much like a boxer, the Ukrainian armed forces landing weakening jabs to the head and body before the flurry of harder punches occurs. Well, it's a nice metaphor, Simon. Thank you for that. But as I've already mentioned on this episode, I think what's happening now is the shaping phase. Now, you could say this is just semantics. Uh, you know, this is a you know this is the early bit of the counter-offensive. But I think there is an important distinction. When you go, you go. And I think when they do go, it'll be pretty obvious that it, that it's happening. Much like it was at Kharkiv in 2022 and also at Kherson. What seems to be happening is they're prepping. So they're destroying ammo dumps, command centers, and that's where the storm shadow comes into play. But also I think they're fixing the Russians at Bakhmut. And what do I mean by fixing? Well, they're drawing more and more reserves in there uh, and therefore weakening the Russians elsewhere. And it's interesting that even this week, week, another four battalions were assigned to the Bakhmut front to try and stem the advances that the Ukrainians are making on the flanks. So it may seem like we're, we're kind of being a bit petty about this, but I don't think the actual counteroffensive has begun yet.
0: We've got a query here from Chris, who's asking about the geographical dimensions of Ukraine. We all know Ukraine is very, very big. and He's asking for a bit of a comparison in scale he's saying that when you read these news reports, it's quite difficult to visualize what they actually mean in terms of distance, the size of the locations that are being fought over and all the rest of it. And uh, he says, you know, it's easy to think that Russian troops attacking Kherson are practically knocking on the door of Kiev. How big is Kherson really? How does it relate to, say, a British city? Well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? You really when you're reading the news reports, you really need to have a map out in front of you at all times. But just to give you some idea, the distance from Kiev to Kherson is 650 kilometers. So that's about 400 miles. So the same distance as London is from Edinburgh. Kherson itself is about 280, 290,000 or was before the war. So the same size as say Southampton or Newcastle on time.
1: Yeah, it's important to remember, Patrick, that Ukraine is actually the biggest country that's entirely in Europe. So, of course, we're not including Russia in that. How big? Well, 603,000 square kilometres. And by comparison, the UK is 244,000 square kilometres. Ukraine extends for over 1,300 kilometres from east to west and almost a 1,000 from north to south. So it's a massive area, two times bigger than Italy, four times bigger than Greece. And for our Dutch listeners – 14 times bigger than the Netherlands. And in fact, inter- and here's another interesting fact, one of the points is considered to be the geographical centre of Europe, and that's located near the Dilova village in the Zakarpattia region of Ukraine.
0: hope that clears
1: things up for you, Chris. Okay, we've got one here from Fahim Antoniadis, who lives in St Albans, and he's recently discovered the podcast. He's been binge listening, and he notices that there's been no mention uh, from us of the movement called I Want to Live by the Ukrainian authorities. A hotline, he says, aimed at Russian conscripts who don't want to fight. It's fascinating. So Fahim gives a a few of the details, and I've double-checked them. And it's interesting that this hotline, effectively, was set up by Ukrainian military intelligence. And it's just another example of how nimble they've been and how innovative they've been. So in effect, if you are a Russian conscript and you don't want to fight, you can call this hotline and they'll basically tell you how to surrender. So has this had any effect? Well, apparently, there's 16,000 Russian conscripts have used this hotline To either surrender or attempt to surrender with many calling in tears and desperation, as Fahim points out, Uh, the programme even offers up to $10,000 For anyone willing to surrender with useful hardware, such as tanks. So, you know, it has been quite an effective, I mean, that's a serious number. It's interesting, Patrick, as a historical parallel, I was looking at some of the detail of desertions among the Allies in Normandy in 1944, and a similar sort of number of British guys were on the run then, and I couldn't believe the sheer number. Now, they didn't hand themselves into the Germans, but they were on the run behind the lines. What they weren't doing, of course, is fighting on the Allied side. And, And so the loss of people in this is obviously uh, going to affect morale uh, and it's also going to affect fighting capacity.
0: That is something we don't hear very much about, do we, the the role of the deserter. But that number that you've just mentioned, if you said that there were 16,000... 000- uh, British troops uh, who went AWOL uh, during the Normandy campaign, that is news to me. And it's a very significant
1: figure, as you say. And as many Americans, apparently, and also significant numbers. I mean, I'm I'm juggling the figures a little bit. I haven't double checked this, but it's an extraordinarily high number. And, and also in Italy, Patrick, as you know, it was a terrible campaign hell of a lot of people went on the run in Italy too. And I suspect it's one of these things that doesn't really fit with the narrative. We're all in this together, fighting the Axis, you know, enemy. And so it's not that historians have hidden it. It's certainly that it wasn't trumpeted by the officials at the time, even in an attempt to, you know, get their comrades to, you know, stay true to the colours, so to speak.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that even in these days of uh, reconstructing, history and applying sort of, you know, current mores to the events of the past. I still think that if you try to write a book about this, you probably wouldn't get many readers and you might not even get a publisher, mainstream publisher to publish it because uh, these wartime narratives are very, very strong and enduring, partly or largely perhaps because they shape uh, who we are today and no one really wants to be reminded about the complications of the past when we're actually looking at it closely, but basically mess up a kind of vision of the past that we want to cling on to.
1: Another charity to mention by Tina Hughes from Michigan in the United States uh, is Come Back Alive. Uh, this is a group, according to Tina, that was started in Ukraine in 2014. And to her knowledge, is the only charity that we can donate to that has the permission to obtain all weapons for Ukrainian forces. So if anyone wants to go down that route, uh, the charity is www.savelife.in.ua forward slash en so presumably that last bit is the english translation version
0: okay well that's all we've got time for this week uh, do listen in on wednesday for another big interview and join us next friday when we'll have all the latest news and analysis goodbye